Welcome to African Film. African film lovers and cinematic explorers, welcome to another episode of the African Film Podcast. Now, if this is your first time hearing about us, this is a space where we explore the African film industry through the eyes of its practitioners. In Zoom with me is an executive's executive, a filmmaker whose filmography is both extensive and diverse in format. Some recent highlights include Netflix's true crime series, Sands of the Murder of a Soccer Star, the supernatural anthology series, Emoyemi, which is a personal fave, as well as a baby of critically acclaimed documentaries that have competed and gained recognition at key festivals like Sundance and Hot Dogs. On top of that, he also sits on the board of the Durban Fulmart and Sasfit. He has been a juror at the International Emmys and is a founding member of Moon Valley, a studio that is the home to Storyscope and has served as a studio partner to the highly anticipated series Blood Songs that I cannot stop talking about. There is so much to be said about our guests that I could go on for ages. I'm talking about Neil Brandt. How are you doing, sir? I'm super great. Very exciting to be here and to share knowledge with your audience. I really believe that more we talk with each other, the better it's going to be for all of us if we want to grow, to reach our maximum potential as an industry. I feel the same way. So as with most of our podcasts, we're going to start with the uh, same question, which is, what is your favorite African film and why? I don't have a favorite. <laughs> I'll tell you a film that really struck out at me. It's uh, called Atlantique in French or Atlantic. It's a Senegalese film. Yes. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's, you know, the, the first black female director to win the Cannes Palme d'Or, um, you know, in, in, in France in 2019. Yes, we, so, it was our first film in the African Film Club. I love that film, by the way. Oh, really? Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I have watched it. It broke my heart into like a million different pieces. But yes, the, the why. You know, stylistically, it's just put shivers up your spine. I love films that are about real hard realities of people's lives which are stylistically gorgeous the interplay between the magical the supernatural you know the idea of like how does black magic fit into the lived realities of people's experiences right how do we find the cinematic language to convey these stories which are you know, which is essentially about the people that left behind when the dream of immigrating at great risk to your life kind of like takes hold. You know, it's not a South African film. The director, Marty Diop, she comes from, you know, quite a heritage herself. She comes out of a filmmaking language of, you know, what, what I call you know, this transnationalism, transcultural idea, which is very exciting in the world, right? The more we can share experiences, share energies across cultures, across countries, across continents, across languages, and dare I say, in the case of this, between the living and the dead, you know, um, yeah. there's, there's something really beautiful there. And I, you know, any you know, South African or you know, African student of film needs to make it their business to watch this film because it's a cinematic masterpiece. There's, there's no doubt about it. I think it was one of the first Senegalese films that I watched. But one of the things which I've now really come to enjoy and like um, appreciate about it is that the film, um, when you're talking even about the magic realism, the film starts off so naturally. I tend to generally not like watch trailers. And when I started watching it for the first 10 minutes, I genuinely thought that I was watching the wrong thing. I thought I was watching a documentary because of just how natural it is that they approached it. And it stayed that natural, that, that natural and very muted and very reserved energy, which is such a different thing to when you're watching something that's silent and that that's very hyper so that when the magic realism came into it like it adds a different 
like a layer as to how magic realism can feel and not like a big brass sense, but in this very intimate and human um, way that really just like evokes something else. When when that flip happens, you're, like, you're not like, oh, this is a different way of actually looking at magic realism or supernatural stuff. And I really loved that aspect of it in terms of how it interwove and really tried to stay as muted and as you felt like you were watching real people that just happened to be scripted, but it really, like, if I'm making sense. <laughs> no, you're making total sense. Look, I love that word magic realism. I mean, magic realism as a, as a literary style, you know, it changed my life as a young man. I mean, ben, there's a book called Ben Oakley's The Famished Road. It's a literary masterpiece that blew my mind as a young man. And with reality and mysticism collide, I think is very real to the way that, you know, we live our lives as human beings, right? Yeah. And there's so many manifestations of that in, in so many different ways that those ideas get realized through religion, through culture, through superstition. And I think films like, you know, Atlantique that, that manage to visually, I guess, cross over. It takes true vision to do it because it sounds easy, right? But it can, well, it can, it can so easily become stylistically, ugh, you know? And, yeah. you know, obviously there, 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 there's, a, there's a great talent at work there. And you mentioned the word, you know, you thought you were watching a documentary. I love films that are genre bending where the real world and cinema verite type filmmaking blends into scripted narrative. To be able to do that takes talent. But I think audiences are becoming more and more open to different kinds of genres, you know, where I like to be surprised when I watch a film, you know, to be, to be, to start off watching one thing and then end up with a completely different outcome. If, you, if you're not surprised when you're watching films, then I think it's not great. Then you're just doing bubblegum, shutting your brain down to pass time, you know? <laughs> but if you want to be provoked, there's got to be surprise in, in the process. All right. Now let's get back to you. Now, I read that you were born in Namibia. At what point did you actually move? to South Africa and are you now fully based here? What's the, what does that look like? Yeah, I'm, I was I was born in Namibia. I was born in Namibia at a time when Namibia was still part of South Africa, right? South Africa was basically um, what they called a protectorate over Namibia. So it was in a, in a weird kind of way, almost like a, another province of South Africa from after the Second World War until 19, I think it was 89, when Namibia became fully independent from South Africa and gained independence after a a low energy uh, civil war, which basically forced the hand. So Namibia is is my home, is my spiritual home, but it's got it's got a lot of similarities to South Africa in that, the, you know, the system of apartheid was well and alive, you know, in Namibia as well. You know, it was a separate country, but the, the South African government implemented all the policies of the apartheid government in Namibia. So there, you know, there's a lot of similarities, you know, yeah. some respects between the two countries i went to school in cape town you know i know cape town very well part of my dna so i consider myself very much a south african you know i mean i've been living here for like 25 years we've got family roots going back you know generations but i do love going to namibia and uh there's something about the space that's made me as a human being you know the, the, the desert is truly wild and free that's infiltrated my mind that. I feel like my mind is free to to look at the wide open spaces, you know, both metaphysically and physically, because you know I like to look onto the horizon, and that's something I think that movie has done for me, which uh, I really really love. So I I find that very interesting because 
<laughs> the history of Namibia and South Africa, I don't think is, well, actually from my, I'll just speak from my experience and my schooling experience was never actually touched upon, which kind of then I had a whole line of questioning, which now doesn't make sense, but now I understand <laughs> as to also, because also the going, going to ask about like the film industry, but if it was already tied, that also kind of means that Namibia's film ind industry would low-key then be tied to what South Africa's apartheid film history would have been. There's only 2.5 million people in Namibia, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's, I mean, the, 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 I think it'd be overstatement to call the film an industry. I mean, there's definitely some talented filmmakers that come out of Namibia. There's a couple of filmmakers in Namibia working with the resources that, that they've got in the country. You know, my, my old partner, Bridget Pickering, is from Namibia. You know, we worked together for years making, you know, films together, including uh, Emiliani, as you, as you mentioned. But yeah, as an actual industry, I, no, no. It's, I think that industry is much, as far as South Africa is concerned, there's no comparison. And even South Africa, I mean, do we have a film industry in South Africa? I mean, we definitely have some kind of a film industry in South Africa, but in terms of a mass market that's got huge audiences that can generate revenue through box office, that's a tough call, right? Yeah. Um, the movie have that, and, and South Africa has it sometimes, but, you know, in the heyday of box office, it was very few films, that, you know, local films at least, that did big box office. By industry, a film industry that is able to return investments to producers by generating bums on seats, right? There's an yeah. equation. That, you know, you need to create content films that people want to watch, and then you've got to create an environment that is facilitates people to go to watch films, right? That's a tough call in South Africa. You know, there's, you know, we've got a fractured language base. So it's how many people can go watch a single film, right? So the, the math doesn't always add up. The industry that we have, you know, is is based on, on, on different, I think, rules than just pure box office. And that's something I think we can talk about more as we go along, but it definitely poses challenges. It's very different to the Nigerian industry, for example. You know, the evolution of Nollywood is based on a highly commercial model. There has been no state support for filmmakers in Nigeria. They know what their market wants. They produce a video for X amount of cash. And they know that they don't sell X amount of, back in the day, DVDs. Nollywood was founded on, on DVD sales, right? Yeah. But it was, a, it was a commercially driven process where, you know, Nollywood just knew exactly what their audiences want. You didn't give them that you would lose money, right? So you, as, as a producer or director, you had to be highly tuned into what, what your audience wanted, right? Um, because you had money at stake. And I think so, you know, South Africa, we are thankfully in a, I think, in a, I think a really exciting time in, in the South African film industry. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of opportunity. Things have opened up. Things have, you know, broken up. Things are breaking up. South African producers are producing content that the world wants. So it's changed. I think for a long time, I think we were stuck, right, in a commissioning model, you know, for, for local channels that wasn't really giving filmmakers the opportunity to understand what it means to speak to, to an audience. An audience. Yeah, that's actually a, a conversation I've had with a lot of people in terms of the limitations of commissioning in that even though it relieves a lot of burden from us in terms of us having to not raise funds. At the same time, we're you kind of no longer speak to an audience, you're speaking to the channel and what the channel's voice is and trying to meet them as opposed to then speaking directly to or identifying what the voice that you bring that can resonate with the actual end user can be. 
I believe that absolutely as a writer specifically um more than anything else because you're writing to you know if I'm writing to this channel I have to meet these these needs that a seven-year-old and a 64-year-old must be able to watch the same thing they may not have to like it but if it's on they must be they must not move away <laughs> type of thing no, I mean it's, it's, it's crazy I, I remember I remember early in my career, like it was literally SBC one, two, three. I think even before ETV was even around, DS, uh, Mnet was a closed shop at that point. We used to analyze the the, the marketing blurbs for SBC one, two, and three, right, to try yeah. and understand like who their audience was and what they who they're trying to speak to, you know, and then trying to stand, okay. But think of it now, it feels so like, oh my gosh, did we actually do that, right? You know, go on to, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a website to try and figure out what, you know, SBC's audience was, and then use that, as you just very correctly said, to to try speak to an audience, right? Yeah, and, well, I actually, but, 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 we but, do the but, same thing right now. I'm not even going to lie. Uh, when we started our production, we would go to the, we still actually do. No, 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 look, look, you have to look, you have to do it. I mean, whether it's Netflix or SBC or, or Mnet or, or Amazon or any, any platform, right? You've got to understand, you know, who they are targeting as their audience, right? That's just, you know, smart, the business of film. I do get nervous about it though, because on the one hand, true or tier cinema the most groundbreaking ideas don't care about the audience, right? They're driven by a deep passion for a particular idea that's outside of the box. That kind of cinematic voice definitely doesn't care about the audience profile demographics of a platform. Those voices are few and far between or, or have not been nurtured enough, right? I'm sure there are a lot of Otia voices in South Africa, in West Africa, but... How many of those voices have been given the opportunity to thrive, the opportunity to take risks, the opportunity to explore, uh, to make mistakes, to experiment, to practice the craft in a way that is that is not prescriptive to the tyranny of the algorithm, <laughs> the tyranny <laughs> of, of, of speaking to an audience demographic as listed on a website, right? Yeah. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think that, you know, the business of content needs to speak to audiences and as producers directors the sooner you understand that and you know producers writers and directors i should say the sooner you understand that 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 platforms are ultimately a business that are speaking to audiences right the easiest is going to be for you to engage with your content right how to find content that is accessible to a mass audience but still has your unique voice you know your yeah. unique take on the world those are not mutually exclusive ideas right and there are there are basically no rules and if there are rules then they're damn well meant to be broken the last statistic i heard was more so in like 2018 because i've not seen um the updated versions but at that point in time the industry was at least uh 90% based on commission work and i think we've kind of slightly decreased that but i don't think by too much and a lot of the work that you've done works a lot within the indie space as well as the infrastructural space so where do film markets actually then fit into this actual um sphere as an independent filmmaker and how how does how should one actually be looking to navigate when they're actually dealing now as an independent with the concept of film markets and those things? Film markets are a very important part of 
I guess, the ecosystem. Yeah. You know, I've worked in both commissioning environments. You know, I've sold series, to, you know, that are now owned by broadcasters and, and platforms. And I've also produced a lot of content that I own myself that we've put together patchwork financing through multiple sources. We own the rights and we continue to sell those films for years. I, I much prefer, to be honest, indie filmmaking where I own the rights because, you know, you, you, you maintain ultimate creative control and you get to own your own IP and you get to benefit from that from future sales. And it's just generally a, you know, a very exciting process. There's definitely a space for commissioning as well. You know, our companies, we have a mixed model. We do commissions and we do indies, right? I think you kind of have to do both. Yeah. I've been going to markets for as long as I know myself as a producer. Right now, being on the board of the, of the Durban Film Art is an enormous privilege and a responsibility that I feel that I have towards the development of the, of the South African industry because I know how important markets have been for me in terms of my access points to the local and international markets. You know, the, the, the Durban Film Art has been around for 13, 14 years now. When I was starting off in my career in South Africa, you know, I think I went to every single one of them, you know, and, and it was an amazing opportunity to, you know, practice the discipline of putting together your, your packages, of having opportunity to be in a room with international financiers, to understand what it takes to pitch your ideas to decision makers um, who have come, you know, from every corner of the world to South Africa. And if they've come that far, they're generally interested in looking for African content. That's what they had to do, right? Yeah. But you know, it's still up to you as, as a producer or director, as a writer, that you know what people want. Decision makers get a lot of projects, right? So even in that curated environment, you still got a lot of competition, right? Yeah. Um, someone might come from, from Sundance and they'll yeah 25, 30 projects uh, at the pitching forums but they might take one. So there's, there's a process. The reason international financiers like markets, the market's already done a lot of the hard work for them, whether you're sales agents, distributor, or you're a financier, or you're an equity fund, or you're a platform of some kind, are getting approached all the time by thousands of people around the world. The, the noise and the clutter becomes high, right? Yeah. So how do you try filter out the noise? And markets, I think, are one of the ways of filtering out the noise. Because what the Durban Film Art does, for example, it will, it will take content from all over Africa. It will receive hundreds of projects and hard work that goes behind the scenes to really narrow it down to the most developed, the most evocative, the most exciting projects that really have some piece of the puzzle put together means that that selection of 30, 40 has already gone through a rigorous process. There's already like some kind of stamp of approval or access, which just lifts you a little bit out of the, the fray, right? Yeah. And it just takes one person to say yes, to change everything for you, right? And I think markets do provide that opportunity. If you are scared of no's, then this is not the right industry for you, right? Yeah, no, it's not. As your understanding of the industry evolves, as your relationships with talent evolve, as your, you know, your ability to put packages together evolves, you get better and better at developing ideas that have a, a, a better chance of being picked up by, I'll use the word again, decision makers, people who were able to help unlock the finance that you need. And that boils down to a, a process of trust building. Trust building, first of all, in the creative intent, the core story idea. I mean, that's the foundation of all of it. But building trust in you as a creative, 
because people invest obviously in projects uh, but also invest in you as as a human being right yeah that your creative integrity your your creative intent works for the mandate of the fund or, or the platform right it doesn't happen instantly that's a process you know the more you produce the more content you have behind you and the more credits you have to your name it does get easier to build up that trust capital yeah but it never stops right I mean, I've been producing for 20 years and I'm still constantly in the process of building up trust capital with partners. I mean, in some ways it feels like I've been doing exactly the same thing for a long time in that every new show, you, I've, got a, I've got a long list of credits behind me and that might, you know, it's easier to get meetings maybe and people will take you seriously because you've delivered, right? But it doesn't, that only gets you so far, right? There's, yeah. there, there's still the creative personal and financial trust that's required now to to make sure that that project gets off the ground and that's a constantly evolving process that is never ending and that's what's also so exciting about this business right there's always the next step uh, there's always a a bigger project with a with a bigger audience that has more impact and changes more people's minds and makes people cry laugh delight you know, it's just never ending. And that's, I think it's why it's so exciting for so many people, including you know, ourselves at, at StoryScope. So at the start of this, you had spoken about um, when, was, when you were speaking about the South African film industry and questioning whether it is actually a full film industry. Your actual background in terms of academic study was in economics and international law. So your understanding of <laughs> industry, I think, is slightly different to what Maya, as someone who studied uh, writing and film, would be. So within your perspective what within the ecosystem of our industry could we be working on that develops um that makes the industry more sustainable um actually let's just let's, let's start there because i feel like in saying that develops more tier voices kind of feels counterculture to each other so let's start with the sustainable part before we get to the <laughs> more touristic part yeah i mean that's a big question I think the first thing that needs to be done is we need to create a stable policy environment that nurtures film production and the investments that need to go into it. That goes right back to the way our intellectual property framework is managed. Right now, we have an IP framework that's hotly contested. And there's a new bill that's coming to place where there's a lot of arguments within the industry with different camps about the damage or the or the benefits of how that IP regime is going to impact the film industry. I don't think we have time to get into it now, but the, the, the truth is that filmmakers and the bodies that they work with have responsibility to speak with each other to make sure that the very foundational legal base from which we create IP is working for all parts the of the chain. And that's a very complex thing to do. It's got to encourage investment on the one hand. It's got to protect talent on the other hand. It's going to protect costs on the other hand, but in a way that is manageable and feasible and, and works off best international practice with some allowance for local conditions. That right now is not happening. That's a very foundation, right, of creating an environment that people's IP is protected and that encourages investment, that allows all kinds of content to be made and that that content can return, given a return investment to investors and make sure that the original TAN and the original IP is also rewarded in the long run. That's a, a balance that can, I think, it 
the, you know, the, the, the United States system works. Let's look at the way international best practice works and make sure we learn from that. That's high-level intellectual property policy level. Then, of course, I mean, what South Africa has that most African countries don't have, we've got the support of government. The National Film and Video Foundation does really good work. Ultimately, not a lot of money, but it's important money. It's yeah. leverage that can make the difference between your film getting a good kickstart in life. Yes. So the NFF is a critical player in the ecosystem, but fundamentally the money that they can put in is development leverage money to get projects going. The other main place to get money in South Africa is the DTI rebate. And the DTI rebate is a very powerful tool that has worked very, very well for a long time. But I'm sure you know, you know, I've heard that there are a lot of complications around the reliability of the rebate. Yeah. And the way the rebate is perceived by local filmmakers and, and global filmmakers. The rebate needs to become stable, reliable, predictable, bankable paper, right? That if you, as, as a producer, do your homework and do everything you are meant to do and you do it properly, that you're then guaranteed of getting the money that is your part of the IP, right? Mm. That 25 to 45% is critical, critical cash that gives you a stake in the game. As South African producers, if you want to play in the international market and you want to come with something, you're coming out, you know, maybe if you're lucky, a little bit of money from the NFEF, you know, if you're even luckier or, or persistent, you've got a local platform on board. But if you've got the DTI, then you've got a nice chunk of financing attached that gives you rights to earn future equity. So without without having that in place, it just makes your negotiating position on international projects very low. You know, it's and 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 I think what happens is that, and, and I've seen it time and time again, is that without that you on the back foot and international money then has higher bargaining power on IP rights, on creative rights and distribution rights. So it's not a tenable situation. What needs to happen is that the, the DTI, the NFEF, the IDC, the Industrial Development Corporation, the, the, the policy of engaging with the industry needs to be synchronized. People need to be speaking with each other, hearing each other. There needs to be full cognizance of the, the reality of, of what producers face on the ground. Producing, you know, stand the DTI is coming from. They have, a, you know, a very important mandate, which is critical. You know, transformation is a moral necessity in South Africa. And even besides being a moral necessity, I don't even understand players or producers that are kind of like weirded out about that necessity, right? Because true South African content that is fun to make, that will find an audience, is by necess necessity transformed, right? Because yeah. that, that is what the circle story is about. So if everyone is understanding these imperatives and, and how they work together and that the industry organizations are heard, industry organizations themselves are speaking to each other um, with a unified voice to make sure that the IP laws, the Copyright Act is, is working for everybody, that the way the rebate runs, Way that you know the way the IDC looks at projects, then we can create an ecosystem, a financial ecosystem, an architecture that gives South African projects the best possibility of succeeding, of being financed, of being owned by producers, and securing distribution, not only locally but also globally. Right? They have it has to work. Otherwise, you're stuck in a commissioning environment, right? Which is it's fine, but 
not everyone's going to get commissioned by Netflix or Amazon, right? It's a very small percentage of producers and directors that will eventually be commissioned. Yeah, that pie is the same. So you're always fighting for the same amount of budgets against a growing number of production companies every year. So yeah. you've, got to, you've got to find a way to, to have a, a, you know, to understand, work, with, work in the commission environment, sell your IPG platforms, no problem. But at the same time, be working on projects where you own the IP, you putting together finance plans and setting that content you know, and understanding how the system works. And that brings us back to things like the Durban Film Art, right? Going to the Durban Film Art, uh, for example, is an easy and accessible way for young South African talent to learn about some of the, 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 the basic principles of film financing, right? To be exposed to the players that are out there um, and what it takes to, to get your projects from, from script to screen. One of the conversations we'd actually had in the first season uh, had revolved around advocacy and we had um, Adran Koma on it. And I may be paraphrasing a bit, but part of what she said also kind of lies in that is since you're also kind of brought up Nigeria and South Africa, is that we have an actual very, she didn't say it's a very supportive, but the amount of grants and actual support filmmakers have is actually quite plentiful when we compare it to a lot of other countries, but that might also kind of be a hindrance in our ability to properly, like, don't want to, but they don't feel the necessity to unionize. Do you think um, that that could actually, not un- I'm using very, um, not no. unionize, but to work to come together, together right yeah. to, to, to come okay. together and actually speak in that unified voice do you think since you are speaking about advocacy that that kind of lies into it or what could you talk, you talk about advocacy help? industry advocacy to make sure the industry works better right yes because so, part um, of what you've been talking about has been within yeah. that space yeah no, no no fair enough there is enormous goodwill and support from government the film sector is recognized as a high growth industry with a lot of potential to create jobs and to create economic output and to get foreign direct investment. So there is a recognition of that, which is a very powerful step. And the Southern government has really done a lot to put the money where their mouth is. For the money that's there in a, in a country that has got a lot of demands on resources, there's a lot of competition for that money. There's hunger, there's poverty, there's basic services, right? Why invest in film when there's all this other competition for basic human necessities? And the argument is that, well, by generating economic turnover, that you generate opportunity and you generate work and you generate the means for people to create a life for themselves. Those two can never be uncoupled from each other. And the South African government and and the institutions that support it and that support each other in the industry, they will always be fighting these competing interests. So for industry organizations that are advocating for a better film structure, need to understand that, need to work within that, to remove anything in the system that creates uncertainty, that creates confusion. And the only way to do that is by really like a smooth synchronicity between those systems so that there is no friction, that the best ideas with you know responsible producers who respect the money and respect the talent are able to find a path to the market. And then once they find a path to the market, that they've got the rights and ability to earn revenue from selling those projects. Then we're creating an ecosystem, a film industry, right? Which will then do exactly what it's meant to do. Pride in South African, African culture, telling our, our stories, taking our voice to the world 
at the same time quite creating long-term economic viability for all South Africans, right? And that's not an easy job. There is, you know, I think there are South African South African filmmakers like to complain a lot. You know, there is complaining that happens out there. There are reasons to complain sometimes, but that doesn't get anyone anywhere, right? Constructive engagement with the system is what you have to do. So as young filmmakers, as young producers, get involved with the organizations that are representing your interests. And there's a number of them, right? You know, yeah. um, there's there's the you know, the Black Filmmakers Collective, there's IPO, there's the DFA, there's SASFED, there's SWIFT. There's a lot of organizations that have the best interests of their constituents at heart. And there's organizations that are that are working together to or trying to work together sometimes to make make it happen in a way that really makes it easier for all of us. And I think I think it's our responsibility as filmmakers to spend some time getting involved because you can't comp- I don't think I don't think you have a right to complain if you're not doing something about it, right? If you've got stories you want to tell and that stories that you believe have a have a right to be heard or or have a, a voice that you know and that you have that burning desire to get that out, that's great. Do everything you can to make that work, but also understand that that content is in a context of an industry that is currently trying very hard to make itself felt. And it's a very exciting moment. That's the thing. The streamers are, yeah, in full force. And they're shaking up the way the local broadcasters are working as well. So the way the Mnet works, the way CakeNet works, the way even the SABC works has been shaken up by the system where there's more openness to co-productions, for example. So the entire ecosystem is really being shaken up. So for young talent right now, it's a moment, right? There's a real moment to 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 shine but that's got to be done responsibly you've got to understand how the system works and then find out your way to break those rules right we all know the system works in a particular way but it also people want you know you have there to, is no one path right yeah you have there to is, find your own path within that everyone, exactly at the end of the day, I think it boils down to your belief in yourself and your belief in your story. Like finding stories that shake up the system, right? Finding stories that, that surprise yourself, ourselves, and your potential audience. And the money will always come to those stories, right? If you are thinking outside of the box and you are able to package that, there will be many ways to get to that market. Things like the Durban Film Market you know, locally are just one way to do it. There are many international markets I could list. 20, 30 international markets that are looking for African content right now, right? And there's, there's so much opportunity for, for, for good ideas to be presented. It's like the world just discovered that Africa exists, right? It's always existed. The Hollywood system has kind of only woken up to that recently. You know, I think the big turning point in the psychological landscape of the, you know, was was Black Panther, right? Yeah, that was, that was the nexus point. Everyone's going, okay, we the gates have opened and that's the thing right so one thing which i found very interesting about your filmography is you have a heavy leaning towards documentary and non-fiction content which is something which i find quite rare um i have recently gotten into making my own non-fiction series i have a six-part one that we've like wrapped production and now trying to get into distribution but what got you into the actual docu space, and what fascinates you so much about that, specifically on the political side, and what is it actually navigating? Because 
African politics and actually just politics in general is is a very turbulent space to be playing on the fiction side, but you're also playing it now on the actual nonfiction space, which is the reality space. Yeah, I mean, audiences are attracted to powerful characters, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, right? For me, the, the nonfiction space is quite honestly my first love. Documentaries, I don't know, it's just like they provide such extraordinary opportunity to get under the skin of, of topics that are thrilling to the world we live in, right? One of my, when I, one of my first films I made was Angola Soldados for the One Who Loves You. Before we formed in Angola, and someone who grew up in Namibia, you always grew up with this idea of like war breaking out and spilling over into Namibia, right? Because mm-hmm. there was a 27-year-long civil war, which was horns of the Cold War. So for me, it was an amazing opportunity to go into Angola shortly after the war ended to tell a story of a country desperate for peace, desperate to find a way to live in a democratic environment, but that had been brutalized by a war that had destroyed the country, right? Yeah. So we made we made this film, uh, which really looked at, we looked at it, we, had a, we profiled a number of characters from politicians to hip hop artists, to street urchins, to like all kinds of people that spoke to the moment of time in Angola that was some kind of reflection of the dreams of that country at that time. So that was a very emotional journey personal one being someone who grew up next to Angola the process of making the film was extraordinary but then what was really extraordinary about the film was the reception it got I mean we sold that film to like 20 broadcasters around the planet every corner of the world so it actually sold as a commercial product but I think one of the most exciting things about the film is that the film was pirated right this is one of my very first <laughs> many years ago it was pirated in Angola that all these movie clubs right in Luanda all these movie clubs young people used to like use our film as a film to watch in movie clubs in Luanda, right? <laughs> and, and to talk about politics and democracy and holding the powerful to account. That for me as a filmmaker was an incredibly exciting moment, right? I've never been more excited for my film to be pirated, right? I felt like it wasn't even my film, it was their film. Yeah. So my, my love of documentary, I guess, came from there. The other one of my first documentaries was Alliance Trail with Francis Bastet. We had a film about, I don't know if you know the song, uh, Woman Aware. Yeah. We tracked that song from its very roots. Solomon Linda wrote that in KZN. The, the, the music was stolen, basically, by the U.S. copyright system. Yeah. And it became multi-millionaires you know, when Solomon Linda and his family basically lived in poverty, right? So we told the story of the song, Cradle Experience, understanding the pain of Africa's intellectual property being stolen by the West, right? And having the the privilege and the honor of curating that story for a global audience, you know, that film ended up, you know, also selling, I think we sold eventually to 100 broadcasts around the world. Uh, We won an Emmy for outstanding artistic and cultural achievement. This is now almost 20 years ago, so I'm showing my age. Uh, So these kind of films, part, part of my historical, you know, love of the form. It's quite funny because the Solomon Linda story was, repurposed by Netflix about three years ago and Netflix bought all the rights to the footage that we had for, on that original film that we made made ages ago. So it's kind of like the whole the system's coming full circle yeah. through 
through the years, right? And how do you find it navigating trying to do more nonfiction content against fiction? Because I'm guess, and would it be a right assumption to say your nonfiction content is more self-raised as opposed to your fictional content? You know, I think I produce around 200 hours of, of fiction content, right? Yeah. We've done, you know, between Emma Yeni and Keeping Score and Shakespeare and Zanzi and, and Hustle for E. Together, you know, with my partners at, at Fireworks, we... We really produced a you know a lot of I think of drama that really spoke to a particular moment of South Africa's like cultural expression and that I'm you know, very proud of my involvement in that work. You know the the fiction we're trying to do now you know I think is more stylistically ambitious in that you know, we're really looking at working with talent that has a voice and and trying to create the the framework around that talent that gives that story the, the best opportunity of being the best that it can be right yeah and there's a lot more opportunity for that to happen right now you know there's a lot more financing avenues available so you know those films that we have in our, our slate right now are very exciting to us but you know the truth is that we do we do both you know fiction and non-fiction in the states many companies are highly highly specialized not only on non-fiction, but on one kind of non-fiction, right? Yeah. They'll do reality or shiny floor shows or political documentary or whatever or it competition is. Competition formats. Yeah. And that, or whatever they do, they'll focus only on that, right? Whereas in South Africa, I think a lot of producers, you know, ourselves included, we've had by the very definition of survival, right? <laughs> in, a, in a small industry that doesn't necessarily have space to focus only on one kind of content, I think it's changing now, and they, and I think that focusing on a on a particular genre does have its merits because you become you know really good at that. But you know my history as a producer has by definition required us to work across genres and not just genres, but also infrastructurally because you have Moon Valley as the actual place that you can shoot, and you have the form part of the format. So you it's not just one area, but it's also you have your own ecosystem within everything that yeah, you've got it you got it exactly you know we we've worked worked hard at creating an ecosystem you know a physical infrastructure a creative you know relationships with with talent across the board there's a lot of hard work that goes into joining all those dots in the day you know story scope we are driven 100 by story we like we only we are the decisions we make are all based on like do we love the story right we don't love the story. We're not interested, right? We, but even if we love the story, then we then we like okay. Well, we love the story, but do we know how to produce the story? Right? <laughs> and yeah. we don't know how to produce every story. I mean, we get great stories that are either too big or are you know of a genre that we have no context or relationships with the market in, and we don't want to waste anyone's time. So we like we look at stories that okay, we love the story. Sometimes our own story, and sometimes stories that come to us, and then we figure out well. Do we know how to tell the story? Do we know how to finance the story? And then also mix in all that is like, do we like the people around the story, right? Filmmaking is a, is a long-term marriage, right? It's a, an emotional, legal, creative journey that binds you together, you know, for sometimes definitely months, but sometimes years. And then you live with the consequences of that story for the rest of your life. And so you want to be very sure that the people that you're making films with that you respect them, you respect each other, that you buy into their, their creative integrity, into their personal integrity, and that you can work together, right? If you don't have that, it becomes a hell, right? I've definitely had hell situations where it's become complicated 
and you don't always know until you've really worked with someone, right? But if, you, if all those variables come together, you can make magic. And um, that's what we, you know, in, in the business of doing, right? Now, people ask me what I do. I say, well, I occupy the, the friction zone between art and business. It's a very contested space. I sometimes get it right and I sometimes get it wrong. You know, we're learning all the time and uh, we're always looking for people to learn with. So yeah, exciting times. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our discussion because we have been talking for an hour and I know you do have a, your busy man has other meetings to go to. So I just wanted to say thank you for giving us your time and perspective on this conversation. I think there's a lot, there's a good roadmap that people can take and there's also a lot of information that people can have with them. And I've also learned quite a bit from speaking with you and not just speaking with you, but going to the Fulmart this year for the first time. I also spoke at the Fulmart, which is an amazing experience. So um, thank you so much for the work and for your time. And I incredibly enjoyed this conversation and your presence in it. I enjoyed it as well, man. You're a mind. And I'm sure I'm going to see you uh, and hear about you a lot more going forward. And I, and I, and I salute your journey. And uh, I really look forward to our paths crossing again. You know, we're in this industry together. It's amazing to me how paths cross again and again and again and again and again, right? Yeah. And I, and I feel our paths are going to cross for many years. And I, and I look forward to that. And uh, well done on this amazing initiative. I really do hope uh, it gets traction. And if you have one final message for our listeners in terms of just being within the African cinema industry or just, it can even be a random one, what would you like to leave them with? And if they want us to contact you, if they can contact you, what would be the best way to do so? Believe in yourself. Never take no for an answer. And even if no comes, find other places where you might get a yes. I think that a lot of people operate in isolation and it's possible to get despondent. But the thing is that it just takes one yes to change the trajectory, maybe not only of your story, but of your life, right? If you hold on to that, I think that anything is possible. Look for collaborators around you that you that you can trust and that are, you know, can, can listen to you and you can share ideas with and, and work with. And never be afraid of, of reaching out. I love doing this kind of thing. I love sharing knowledge. There's a lot of people out there who really want to see new people come into the industry and want to see the industry grow and just, you know, recognize and celebrate and support talent. Hold on to that and uh, never be afraid to reach out. I'm, I'm very easily contactable. Storyscope's got an Instagram, I've got a LinkedIn, I've got an IMDb and I've got a website. And, you know, so all you gotta do is Google Neil Price and you can find, you know, 10 ways to get hold of me. I generally try to answer every email that comes my way, you know, in some manner or form. And we are, you know, we are always are looking for new talent, new ideas. You know, that's what we're there for. So, you know, feel free to reach out to me anytime you want. Storyscope, ladies and gentlemen, our cinematics explorers and African film members. Thank you for giving us your time, uh, listeners, and thank you, Neil. And that has been an episode of African Film.